So John chapter 15, we're going to open a brand new series that we're going to preach through um, most of the month of January for four weeks from John 15. And honestly, one of the most significant um, four-week series or series that I've ever preached um, will, you will hear over the next few weeks because we are invited by Jesus to a relationship that I must sadly say most Christians never embrace and never participate in. And that is a relationship of abiding in Christ. And we're going to learn what that means and how God has called us to that. And it is available to us over these next few weeks. These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. And this will be our text for the next four Sundays. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus said, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you will desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Verse number 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Father, this morning we are um, so grateful for the blessings of this past year. And yes, Lord, there have been trials, there have been hardships, there have been struggles. But as we are honest and we look back, there have been many victories, many, many blessings that we are so incredibly grateful for. And we expect and anticipate even greater things in the days that are ahead. We do that not because the news or the media tells us to do so, not because a politician tells us to do so. We expect great things because you have promised that if we abide in you and your words abide in us, that we will bear much fruit. And Lord, we are expecting to see fruit born in our lives and in this church in the days that are ahead. Lord, we've been busy, we've been active, we've celebrated, we've had family time. Many of us have felt very rushed. But I pray in these next few minutes that you would quiet us. Those who are watching online or who may watch it later, would you quiet their hearts 
And would you captivate our attention supernaturally? Help us to hear your word and even beyond just the words. Let us hear the voice of the Holy Spirit wooing us and calling us to a deeper walk of remaining and abiding in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would help me in these next few minutes to speak not even one single word that originates in my flesh, but may every word that is spoken come from you. And I ask God for your anointing, not because I deserve it, but precisely because I don't and I haven't earned it, and yet I need it to rightly divide and to communicate your word. So let your anointing rest upon my life. In my weakness, let your strength be made perfect. May we not be captivated by feelings, but may instead we be captivated by truth and changed by the truth of your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my um, favorite authors uh, from time past, and I've read many of his little books. They're usually small little books. I've recommended a few of those to all of you, but is Andrew Murray. He's a South African uh, preacher, um, holiness preacher and theologian, conference speaker back a couple of centuries back. But Andrew Murray in his little book, Abide with Christ, wrote these words. We're going to put them on the screen. During the life of Jesus on earth, The word he chiefly used when speaking of relations of the disciples to himself was, follow me. But when he was about to leave for heaven, he gave them a new word in which their more intimate and spiritual union with himself in glory should be expressed. That new and chosen word was, abide in me. Murray goes on to say this, it is to be feared that there are many earnest followers of Jesus from whom the meaning of this word with the blessed experience it promises is very much hidden. While trusting in their Savior for pardon and help and seeking to some extent to obey him they have hardly realized to what closeness of union, to what intimacy of fellowship, to what wondrous oneness of life and interest he invited them when he said, abide in me. This is not only unspeakable loss to themselves, but the church and the world suffer in what they lose. We um, like to talk about being followers of Christ. That's kind of become the buzzword. People don't want to use the word Christian anymore because it can mean so many things. And you may ask someone if they're a Christian, well, I'm a follower of Christ. And that's okay. But the point I want to make this morning is that we've been called to be more than just followers of Christ. We've been invited to abide in Christ. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, if you want that splendid power in prayer, you must remain in loving, living, lasting, conscious, practical, abiding unction with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
For the next four weeks, as we kick off this brand new year, I, I want to talk about what it means and how we can abide in Him. I would suggest to you that abiding in Christ is the key to your spiritual victory, to spiritual health, to spiritual vitality. It's not just trying to follow Him. It's learning how to abide in Him. Now, let me set the context for you because that's always important. We are in John chapter 14. This is the immediate context. Jesus is still in the upper room. He has shared the Last Supper with the disciples. Later on this night, he is going to be arrested. He will ultimately be crucified. And he is sharing with them and preparing them for his departure. He is telling them that he must leave. He will tell them he's not going to leave them by themselves, that they will have a comforter. That's all part of this discourse. But, but it is a dark hour for the disciples. They've been with Jesus for three years. They have walked with him. They have followed him. They have eaten with him. They have fellowship with him. They've watched him minister. And now he is telling them he is going to leave. So this is a, a dark, uncertain hour for them. They don't know what the future may hold. And so we hear this great promise of Jesus in John 14. You know it. He said to the disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. And I'm going to receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Later on in John 14... There is this crucial text as Jesus speaks of the union that is between he and his father. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak of my own authority, but the father who dwells in me, he does the works. The word dwells is the Greek word meno. That word will come up again, but he says, the father who dwells, meno, abides, remains, dwells in me, he does the works. In John 14, 16, though Jesus is leaving, he promises that the spirit will come to keep them from being orphans. He says this, I pray the father and he will give you another helper that he, the Holy Spirit, may abide, may know, remain in you. And then chapter 14 ends, and they leave the upper room. John 14, 31 tells us they leave the upper room because we read these words, that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, he said, let us go from here. So we know that after John 14 and after that discourse, they leave, and they leave that upper room. Where did they go? Did they leave the city? When we get to chapter 18, now remember 15, 16, and 17 is between 14:31 and 18:1. but when we get to 18:1, we read these words, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered, and so that's when he went into the garden of Gethsemane. But what happened, where were they in chapter 15, 16, and 17, because that's important to our context. 
There are some people that think that Jesus took them to the temple, although that is doubtful. There is no mention of anything that would strike our minds as being temple-oriented. Likely, they were somewhere on the slopes that led down to the brook Kidron, and there they halted, there they sat, while Jesus taught them, John 15, 16, and 17, and while he gave them this allegory of the vine and the branches. It was nighttime, so they were under the Passover moon, which would have been a full moon, and so they would have seen vines everywhere, and they would have even seen little fires under the full moon at the dark night, little fires where the owners of the vineyards would have taken the brush that they had cut off, and they were burning that. They would have seen little fires. They would have seen vineyards everywhere. And so this would have set beautifully and perfectly the context for what Jesus would say in John 15. Now that's the immediate context, probably sitting on the slopes, vineyards everywhere. They could see the fires at night of the branches that had not borne fruit being burned. But now let me give you the historical and the spiritual context of this allegory. In John 15, 1, Jesus says, now watch this, just bear with me through the introduction. Jesus says, I am the true vine. This, by the way, is the last of the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He has said, I am the light of the world. He has said, I am the bread of life. He has said, I am the resurrection and the life. He has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I am the door to the sheepfold. And now, in the seventh one, he says, I am the true vine. Literally, he says, I am the vine, in the Greek, I am the vine, the true vine. Now just hold steady for a moment, I'm gonna to explain to you why that's important. This order of words focuses on Jesus not just being any vine, but being the true vine. This figure of speech was perf perfectly familiar to the Jewish mind. Because all through the Old Testament, the vine had actually pictured the nation of Israel. Let me give you a few examples. In Psalm 80 and verse 8, you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and you planted it. What was that talking about? Clearly, that's talking about the nation of Israel. In Hosea 10 and verse number 1, Israel is a luxurious vine that yields its fruits. The more his fruit increased, the more alders he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. And then this classic text, Isaiah 5, God is speaking. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines, he built a watchtower in the midst of it, he hewed it out with a, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I've not already done? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge, and it will be devoured. 
I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it waste. I, it shall be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And then in Jeremiah 2.21, it's very clear. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy a pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Now, I want you to look right here for just a moment. Israel knew what the vine was supposed to be. They were the vine. God planted them as a vineyard. God planted them as a holy vine, but they had turned against him. They had rejected him. They had disowned him. They had committed idolatry. Now, during the Maccabean period, which was from 167 B.C. to 37 B.C., the vine had actually become the symbol of the national life of Israel. So the metaphor or the word picture of the vine was completely understood. And now Jesus says to them the night before he dies, I am the vine, the true vine. It's a really interesting statement that Jesus is making. Remember the parable, we've looked at it a couple of times over the last couple of months in Matthew 21, when the owner of the vineyard, he, he leaves and leaves his servants in charge. And then he sends servants back to, to gather the, the, the crop or to the, gather the grapes and they kill the servants. And then finally he sends his son and they kill his son. Again, that picture is Israel is the vineyard, but they failed. And they have killed the Messiah. They've rejected him. So now Jesus says, I am the vine the true. So amid the ruins of the vine or the vineyard, Jesus is saying, look at me for just a moment. He's saying to the disciples, God has not failed. People did, but God did not. His purposes are not abandoned. Jesus said, I am now the true vine. Israel was the vine. They failed. God has not failed. Jesus says, now I am the true vine. What Israel was to do, listen, which was to bring salvation to the nations, they had failed in doing. But now that had been transferred to Jesus and those associated with him. I am now the vine, the true. I am now the one that's going to bring salvation to the nations. I am the vine and you are the branches. This leads us to four pretty simple but important truths that I want to share with you this morning. Number one, if we are going to bear any spiritual fruit at all, we must learn to abide in Christ. Say amen if you believe that. It's pretty simple. I'll explain it, but it's pretty simple just in the words of Jesus. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you, because the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Look at me for just a moment. You can bear no fruit. I can bear no fruit unless I abide and you abide in Jesus. I can't, I can't become a better Christian unless I abide in him. I can't become more Christ-like unless I abide in him. I can't be effective in ministry. I can't be effective in my witness. I cannot be effective as a person spiritually, no matter how hard I try to be better, unless I abide in Christ. You can bear no fruit unless you abide in the vine. So let me ask you a question, great question for the first Sunday of 2022. Does your everyday life demonstrate a life that is truly abiding in Christ? As you sit there today and you think about your life, does my life demonstrate that I'm abiding in Jesus? Does your life bear spiritual fruit? I'm not just talking about converts. That's certainly part of it, winning people to Christ. But I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, temperance, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Is your life bearing that fruit? I'll ask no one to raise their hands if they are or are not. Is your life bearing fruit? Or have you struggled for years to do something for God and achieve nothing? Have you found yourself still irritated and critical of the same things and the same people that you did five years ago? Are you still provoked and angered and tempted by the same things as when you were first saved? Are you still overcome and defeated by moments of loneliness and despair? Do you still battle with ongoing futility and defeats. There are some people that just visit Christ. There are a precious few who learn to abide in Him. You know, we talk about people economically that live paycheck to paycheck. But there are Christians that live church service to church service. I just got to make it till next Sunday and I get a little new charge and maybe I can push through till next Sunday morning. Of course, in America now, the average churchgoer goes to church 1.7 times a month. So you can imagine how low our tanks get if we are living church service to church service. Look at me for just a moment. Everybody in this room, look at me. That is not God's design for you. The church service is not meant to keep you going. Abiding in Christ, abiding in the vine is how you are meant to grow and bear fruit. Brent Curtis um, co-authored a book with John Eldridge. And um, in that book called The Sacred Romance, he wrote these words, if I'm not abiding in Jesus, then where is it that I abide? I once asked myself, I began to notice that when I was tired or anxious, there were certain sentences I would say in my head that led me to a familiar place. The journey to this place would often start with me walking around disturbed, 
feeling as if there was something deep inside that I needed to put into words but couldn't quite capture. I felt the something as anxiety or loneliness and a need for connection with someone. So if no connection would come, I would start saying things like, life really stinks. Why is it always so hard? It's never going to change. No one noticed I was struggling or asked me what was wrong. I found my sentences shifting to a more cynical level. Who cares? Life's a joke. Surprisingly, by the time I was saying those last sentences, I was feeling better. The anxiety was greatly diminished. That's why people get on Facebook and they tell you how bad they're feeling and they vent and they tell you how depressed they are and discouraged and nobody cares and how bad the world is. And they feel better because they vented. They've, they've gone to their place, their happy place that makes them feel like they've gotten it off their chest. He writes, my comforter, my abiding place was cynicism and rebellion. And from this abiding place, then I would feel free to use some soul cocaine. Maybe watching a violent video with maybe a little sexual titillation thrown in. Having a little more alcohol with a meal than I might normally drink. Things that would allow me to feel better for a little while. I'd always thought of these things as just bad habits. But I began to see they were much more. They were spiritual abiding places that were my comforters and friends in a very spiritual way. Again, I don't mean to blast social media. I'm on it every day. But as you watch, sometimes I'm amazed that people who have been Christians for 10 or 20 years, the things they will say, well, I just had to, I had to get away. Or I just had to have a glass of wine just to relax myself. Or, and I, this, this is not a pejorative, I'm not talking about drinking here, I'm just talking about the things we do. I just had to get away, that much needed time away, that much needed time with the girls or the guys, as if that's what I have to have to calm me, to give me peace. But let me ask you this question, um, is that what Jesus meant when he said abide in me? Where do you abide? If it's not in Christ, what are you abiding? And the final light went on, Curtis says. When on one evening when I read John 15, 7 in the message, Peterson translates Jesus' words on abiding this way. If you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. Jesus was saying in answer to my question, I have made my home in you, Brent, but you still have other comforters you go to. You must learn to make your home in me. How many are glad you came on the first Sunday of 2022? Do you understand, folks, if we're going to walk in spiritual victory, we have to abide in Christ. You will not bear spiritual fruit just getting away. You won't bear spiritual fruit just getting rid of all the trouble and drowning it with a drink. You will bear spiritual fruits when you learn to abide in Christ. Number two, you're just glad I didn't go away for two weeks and come back and really want to preach, right? When we do abide in Christ, we bear fruit, but we also get pruned. As if the first part's not bad enough, we get pruned. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, there are two aspects of pruning that I want to talk about. Number one, the removal of the dead wood. If it's dead wood, he just cuts it off. But then there's also the trimming of the live wood so its potential for fruit bearing may increase. You see, dead dead wood is even worse than fruitlessness because dead wood has insects. It, it, It has rottenness in it. And so those areas of our lives that are bearing no fruit God wants to get rid of them. He wants to cut them off because they carry with them a rottenness that will destroy the branch completely if not cut off. So how does pruning work? I'm going to give you three things, and I probably will get in all of our business before this is over this morning. You're welcome, all right? Number one, how does pruning work? You're going to like this one. You never see one branch pruning another branch. Amen, Pastor Kevin. It is not your business to prune somebody else. Come on. Is it, it's not your business to prune somebody else. You don't need to think that God has gifted you and anointed you to cut off the dead wood of somebody. That's not your role. Your role is to abide with Christ and bear fruit and let the vine dresser, the Holy Spirit, prune us. Secondly, this is good news. The vine dresser is never, this is what David Jeremiah said, the vine dresser is never nearer the branches than when he is pruning them. It may hurt like crazy, but to prune us, he has to hold us in his hands. And he's gentle. How many are glad the Holy Spirit is gentle? He holds us in his hands. He doesn't cut off too much, but he prunes us, but never is he closer to us than when he is pruning us? And thirdly, the pruner always has a goal in mind. You know, I am, I am the worst. If I, I, I try every once in a while to trim the shrubs. Thank God the church pays for somebody to take care of the parsonage, or you would have a parsonage with the ugliest shrubs in the world. But I'm not good at it, all right? And then if I, you know, if I use the electric kind, who knows what it's going to end up being, you know. Um, but a pruner that's professional knows what he wants it to look like when he starts pruning. The Holy Spirit knows what he wants you to look like. As he begins to prune you, there is a goal in mind. That's why John writes in 1 John 3, 2, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he appears, when he's done pruning, we shall be like him. That's what he's trying to make us, to prune us, to make us like him. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. How does that pruning happen? Sometimes through painful trials. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the ways God prunes us is to allow us to go through painful trials. 
Now, you can buy into a theology that is completely unbiblical that says that the godly will not walk through trials. That is a bunch of bunk. It is false theology. It is heresy. The Bible says that our trials we should rejoice in because they prune us. Painful trials burn away the junk in our lives. And they cause us to lay hold of him even more tightly than ever before. Some of you, look at me for just a moment, some of you in 2021 have gone through painful trials. It's not because God's angry with you. It's not because you didn't have enough faith. It's not because you didn't have a formula that you quoted right. It's because the pruner has in mind that he wants to make you look like Jesus. And the only way that can happen sometimes is to let you go through a painful trial where he shaves off that which does not look like Jesus. Sometimes it's through personal failure. How many have ever failed before and yet learned something from it? How many have have fallen down and yet you've come up stronger? That's what the Word of God says, Micah 7, verse 8, and I don't rejoice over me, my enemy. Don't get cocky, Satan, if I fall down. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will bring light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord. I'll feel a little pain because I've sinned against him, but then he'll plead my cause and he'll execute justice for me and he will bring me forth to the light and I will see his righteousness. Don't quit when you fail. Don't run from church. If you fail next week, don't say, well, I tried 2022 and I failed already. Just get back up and he will bring you to the light and you will see his righteousness. Sometimes it's through pinpointed spiritual discipline. There are things that God wants to rid from our lives. And because he loves us, he will discipline us. Sometimes the discipline isn't even failure. It's not because we fail. He just, there's some things that he wants to adjust. The writer of Hebrews says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you were left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. You're not sons at all. If you don't ever get disciplined by God, you're not a child of God. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but the disciplines, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's no child or grandchild of yours unless there was something really badly wrong with them that when you spanked them, they said that was the most enjoyable experience I've ever had unless they're just being really cocky and trying to get under your skin and then you spank them harder. I understand how that works. No kid walks away, ah, it was wonderful. You don't do it to make them feel good. You do it because you want to produce in them righteousness. God doesn't do it so we'll say, man, do that again, that felt good. He does it so it will produce the fruits of righteousness. Sometimes he pinpoints spiritual discipline in our lives. He convicts us. Can I just tell you, 
Conviction is a gift we should be so grateful for. When the Holy Spirit convicts, don't get angry. Don't get mad. Don't resist. Yield. Because it's God's way of disciplining you and making you more. It's not because he's angry. It's because he wants you to be more like him. Conviction, confession, contrition. It may be embarrassing. It may be embarrassing to confess your sins to a brother or sister and say, I've really failed here. It may be embarrassing, but it prunes us so that we can then bear more fruit. Alan Redpath said, circumstances which we have resented, situations we have found desperately difficult, have all been the means in the hands of God of driving the nails into the self-life which so easily complains. Your self-life, my self-life, our flesh complains all the time. Too much. And I'll just be honest with you, God gets tired of our complaining, and so he drives the nails into the self-life to make us more like him. While the pruning may be painful, the harvest will more than make up for the pain. Which leads me to the third point. So how do we abide in him? Or how do we move from the theological? We're supposed to abide in him. It's a great theological point. How do we move from the theological to the practical? Number one, and these are really pretty simple. Don't don't get confused by it. Number one, we need to constantly call to mind the truth of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Look at what Colossians says. Paul writes in Colossians, he says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now, I I know that you're happy about this. I'm only going to deal with the top half of this verse. All right. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's who you are. All right, you need to call to mind the gospel. You became a new creature in Christ Jesus when you were born again. God sees you as chosen, as holy, as beloved. So when you are at your lowest point, you need to call to mind the truth of the gospel. The gospel is powerful. The gospel has changed you. That is who you are. Look at 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. What did you hear from the beginning? What you heard from the beginning was, I'm a new creature in Christ. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. That's what you heard from the beginning. Call to mind in those moments of struggle the gospel. The gospel has changed me. I call it to mind. I may not be living up to it, but in God's eyes, that is who I am. Say amen if you believe that. Secondly then, secondly, how, does the, how do I work this abiding out? I call to mind the gospel. I regularly read and study God's word. Romans 12, 2, you know it. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with, songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So call to mind the gospel, regular reading and study of God's word and the discipline of prayer.
time of the Father. Jesus did this. He recognized his own, Jesus recognized his own dependence on the Father. Jesus said, I can do nothing, John 8, 28, I can do nothing on my own. He knew how important it was to spend time with the Father. If you want to abide in Christ, call to mind the gospel, stay in the word, study the word, read the word, and spend time in prayer. Look at me. If you don't read the word and you don't pray, you will not abide in Jesus and you will not bear spiritual fruit. That's not a prophecy. That's just truth. All right? I'm not prophesying. I'm just telling you the truth. You won't. You will bear no fruit unless you pray and you study the word on a regular basis. And then fourthly, this may seem odd. How do we make the theological practical, the ordinances? Here in the ordinances, baptism and communion, the truth of our union with Christ becomes visible. I can see it. When I'm baptized, and, and I know you only, you're, you're only gonna be baptized once, but every time we baptize someone, you need to rehearse in your mind what that means. If you've not been baptized, you need to sign up and be baptized when we baptize in January, but you need to rehearse in your mind, what does that mean? That means I have died with Christ, I've been buried with him, and I am raised a new man in Jesus Christ. You need to rehearse that in your mind. You're not out there on your own, you are in Christ. When I take communion, I am taking his body and his blood. I'm in union with him. That's why the church celebrates the table of the Lord. That's why we baptize, because it reminds us that we are in him. It reminds us of our union with Christ. Number five, obedience to his word. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. In John 15, 9 and 10, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. And let me close with number four. Matter of fact, why don't you stand with number four? It's a short point. I'm going to close sermon one of four about abiding with Christ here. I want you to see how important this was to Jesus. Of all the things that Jesus wanted to communicate before he left, the need to abide in him seemed to be of paramount importance. What what we say in our last words, I think Wayne Murray said that just a few weeks ago, what our last words are, are important. If you think about what you would like to say to your children as your final words to them, they'd be really important words. If you had the privilege of being with a parent or a grandparent when they passed away and, and they were coherent, the words they spoke to you at the end were important words. When Jacob called all of his kids together in Genesis 48, 49, and 50, and he brought them all in the room and he laid hands on them and blessed them, those were important words. These are the last words of Jesus, so they're important words. So he drives this point home in his final injunctions. 11 times this key word, meno, 
abide appears in these final words of Jesus. While many things were of great importance, it was this that his heart longed to see, that his people would stay in him, that they would remain in him, that they wouldn't drift, but they would abide in him to abide where God has put you in Christ. For without me, you can do nothing. I started with the words of Andrew Murray. Let me end with some words of Andrew Murray. It needs time to grow into Jesus, the vine. Don't expect to abide in him unless you'll give him that time. It's not enough to read God's word or meditations as here offered. And when we think we have hold of these thoughts and have asked God for his blessings to go out in hope that a blessing will abide. No, it needs day by day time with Jesus. Therefore, my brother who would learn to abide in Jesus, take time each day here you read. And while you read and after you read to put yourself into living contact with the living Jesus to yield yourself distinctly and consciously to his blessed influence so you will give him the opportunity of taking hold of you and drawing you up and keeping you safe in his almighty life. And then as Bill Kynes wrote, Bill Kynes from the C.S. Lewis Institute says this, like a sailor raising his sails, we must do all we can to catch the wind. But it's the wind, listen, it's the wind that moves the ship. So in our efforts to abide in Christ, it is always God's spirit who must blow as a gentle breeze, enabling us to experience the divine life that is ours in Christ. I don't know about you, but I find myself so easily distracted from praise sometimes too busy to pray, sometimes too anxious to trust, sometimes too angry to rejoice, sometimes too frustrated to wait. I don't wanna live that way in 2022. I don't want my emotions to drive whether or not I produce fruit. I want to learn, I want to learn to abide in Jesus to abide in him and not let my emotions, my frustrations distract me. I wanna say, Holy Spirit, I wanna open the sails of my heart and I want you to blow on me so that I can abide in Christ and bear fruit. With your heads bowed for just a moment this morning, anyone in this room that would say, Pastor Kevin, I." Not only do I not abide in Jesus, I don't even know Jesus. I'm not serving him. I don't belong to him. I'm not a child of his, but I want to be. Would you pray for me? I want to give my life to Christ today. I want to start this new year in a new walk, serving him following him and abiding in him if that's you if you don't know christ but you want to know him today and you want me to pray with you i love the chance just to pray with you right where you're at would you slip up a hand anyone in this room say pastor kevin i want to make jesus the lord of my life i want to make him the lord of my life in this new year anyone in this room 
anyone in this place. With your head still bowed, let me ask you this second question. How many would be honest enough to say, Pastor Kevin, I am a, I'm a believer. I am a follower. But I've not yet learned to abide in Christ. And in 2022, I want to abide in Christ. And I'm going to raise my hand today. Maybe I've been a Christian for 25 years, 35 years, maybe just for three months. But I'm going to raise my hand and say, by way of raising my hand, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to blow into my life and teach me to abide in Him. How many would raise your hand with me and say, all over this room? It's an old, old chorus. But it's a great prayer. Spirit of living God, fall fresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me.